Uh, my sermon title for this Lord's Day is uh, uh, What's the Big Deal? What's the Big Deal? Now, the Blues Clues uh, cartoon, many of you uh, parents or grandparents, uh, nieces, or I shouldn't say nieces, aunts and uncles would be familiar with the Blues, Clues, the Blues Clues cartoon. And, uh, but it's been interesting uh, paying attention to what, what they've been doing with that cartoon. It seems to be normalizing the uh, polyamory or polyamorous pr- uh, parenting. I don't know if you've noticed that. I'll share a few things with you. Um, and what polyamory means, I've got the definition here, it's the act of having intimate relationships with more than one person at a time. So imagine watching a cartoon and that's the message that's being uh, portrayed, right? So Blue's Clues has also been promoting an entire range of sexual uh, lifestyles, which include LGBTQ, knowing full well that the audience of Blue's Clues is the age group between the ages three and five. Now, in doing this propaganda and promoting such things, they do it with the help of an animated narrator, which is an animated drag queen, more than a few times, especially during what they would call the Pride Week. So what's the message? I mean, I think it's obvious what the message would be, but the message in this particular cartoon or this particular, particular episode that I'm referring to is that all families are different. All families are not just different, all families are good, and for those who dare to raise any concerns about such content being given to our three- to five-year-olds, well, we know the way that it typically goes. Uh, you're considered what? If you have a differing view, you're considered a bigot for even bringing up the conversation or something's wrong with you, and that seems to be the day and age in which uh, we live, right? Like, how dare you even make mention of that? That's racist behavior for even acknowledging such things. So we live in a country, and it would be obvious to each and every one of you, that seems to sexualize and then normalize what it sexualizes. That would be the summary of such things. So here's what we need to grab, is the world that we live in, they have this idea that, that one can do anything that you want to do as long as you deem that it doesn't hurt anybody else. That's kind of the, the big lie. And with that thought process, it really becomes, for many people who challenge that type of behavior, it becomes like, what's the big deal? What's wrong with you? Why are you even bringing this to anybody's attention? Again, it's what's the big deal. So with that in view, and I promise you I'm going to put it all together before we end here today, but that's really important to set that up. I want you to stand for the reading of God's word, and I'm going to read verses 27 through 30, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, 27 through 30. And at the end of our service, I'm going to read verses 31 and 32. Okay, so let's read 27 through 30. Uh, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust, with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. I read that twice. (laughs) Yeah, it's the same verse. Let me read that again, 30. And if your right, did I read this twice, this verse? Okay. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body goes into 
So that's God's word. Please sit down. That was the errant errant word of God. I apologize. I stumbled there. My eyes were playing tricks on me. But just keep that in view. Go back to Blue's Clues. I want you to think about the sexual revolution that's going on. When we think of a revolution, what do you think of? Somebody that's trying to overthrow something that was once considered normal, right? We think of a revolution in a government where somebody comes in and Hitler completely had a revolution, right? So a revolution is when you get people to turn the way that they traditionally would think and you overthrow something. So there's absolutely a revolution going on in the world in which we live today. But there's some key words that I want you to notice And those words in our text that I want you to notice would be four words in particular. Lust, sexual immorality, adultery, and divorce. In the text I just got done reading to you, if we go all the way down to verse 32, four times we'll see adultery and four times we're going to see divorce. Again, 31 and 32 really deal aggressively with, with divorce. So what is the big deal? What is Jesus getting at as he's talking here? Remember, Jesus is preaching. It's the Sermon on the Mount. This is the greatest message ever preached, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever lived, which is Jesus. So what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. Jesus is warning all of us, not just his hearers at the time, all of us now, that the lure of lust, the lure of lust can progress into sexual immorality, adultery, divorce, and if not repented of, these sins can throw one into hell. So that's the big deal. It is very serious. So here's my outline for today. Verses 27 and 28, you can summarize it this way. Guard your heart, 29 and 30, guard your eyes, and the 31 and 32, what Jesus says about divorce. Not what the world says about divorce, what Jesus says. So point number one, guard your heart. So again, you have heard that it was said, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you've heard that it was said, this is the words of Jesus, you shall not commit adultery, okay? This is something that everybody in the audience would certainly know about. Remember, it's a Jewish audience. The Mosaic law clearly prohibited adultery. And we see that in Exodus 20, 14. Adultery was considered a serious offense because it broke the marriage relationship between God and his people, and it also broke the seventh commandment. As we've learned in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So God is clear. He doesn't want what he has, he doesn't want marriage to be separated. He wants Divorce is something he hates. Marriage is intended to last forever. So Jesus' restatement here, remember Jesus is preaching, okay? His restatement, if you will, of the seventh commandment, as he says this, it probably elicited a no-duh response. Like, duh, everybody knows such a thing. So they probably were thinking such things, yet Jesus Christ, who, as you know, often refers to himself as the great physician, is ready to provide care to the sick. And sometimes we don't know that we're sick, and Jesus comes in and provides care to us. That's what the Word of God does. It opens us up, and it allows us to hear the things that we think we don't need to hear or reminds us of things we need to be reminded of. So the words of Jesus in the text here, the words of Jesus, at least metaphorically, place many onto his operating table, then Jesus chooses what I would call his, one of his favorite instruments, which would be the scalpel, 
and he begins to just cut in to the heart of those who are listening. And I pray that the Lord would do that on this Lord's day and do the same to me, not just you. Look at verse 28. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what is Jesus doing? Yes, he quoted the he quoted from the law, the seventh commandment, which I said was a no-duh, but that was not a no-duh. So what Jesus is doing is he's, he's telling them what adultery is, and he's saying it's not just the physical act. He says adultery can be committed in one's heart. He even says to even look upon another one, another person, for the intent of arousing illicit sexual desire is adultery of the heart. Remember, Jesus looking at the heart level, something that the Pharisees and those are not grabbing. So Jesus, in this text, is warning all of us to guard our hearts because sin begins in the heart long before it manifests itself outwardly. So that's what we have to be thinking about as we look at this text. J.C. Ryle said this, people fall in private long before they fall in public. How true is that? The fruit or the lack of fruit has always, always is tied to the root. Whatever is at the root of us, that's going to be the fruit of us, right? So what's in us is going to be coming out of us. So going after the root of the matter, which is the heart, is what Jesus continues to do. Thomas Watson said this, God loves a broken heart, not a divided heart. God loves a broken heart, not a divided heart. Because a broken heart, it's a good thing. We think of a broken heart, it's not a good thing. No, a broken heart's a beautiful thing. A broken heart is an open heart. And that would be my prayer today as I deal with a very difficult subject that's going to elicit all sorts of thoughts and emotions for many that are in the room and those that are watching. I'm praying that, and I have been praying, that there would be more than a few who would be open and that God would use this to bring you to a place of brokenness so that, in fact, he can minister to your soul. Because here's what we know for sure. When we're open to the things of the Lord, the Lord is going to give us that new heart with new desires, which makes it possible for the believer to guard your heart. You can't guard your heart if you're not in Christ. So I think that's helpful. So the second point that we see here is guard your eyes. Guard your eyes. Look at verses 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So this is uh, very aggressive, hyperbolic language, but the part that's not hyperbolic is about getting cast into hell, right? But there is some hyperbolic language or hyperbole that I want to explain to you. So Jesus is not suggesting for anyone that struggles with this sin to literally cut off your hand or gouge out your eyes. What he is saying is that one must take this sin seriously and we must drastically deal with such sin. 
D.A. Carson says this, and I quote, and this is just absolutely beautiful. He said, we don't flirt with sin, we don't pamper sin or enjoy nibbling a little of around, a little, and we don't, or enjoy nibbling of a little around the edges. We are to hate it. We are to dig it out. We're to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to our earthly nature, sexual desire, immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. We are to kill sin. What did Owen say? Kill sin or it'll be killing you, right? In that book, Mortification of Sin. So, so serious is this matter before us that Jesus warns us in verse 29 that hell is the just punishment for those who do not deal drastically with our sin. So it's certainly important. I was listening to Pastor Kent Hughes, who I'm really fond of, preach this same sermon, and he said, you know, I have to admit, he was preaching to two services, this was years ago, I think 1984, but I heard the recording, and he said, you know, I wasn't looking forward to preaching this sermon. He goes, number one, it's my, back then, his 22nd wedding anniversary, and number two, the subject at hand can be really difficult to cover. So I pray that you will stick with me and keep leaning in to this. Matthew 6, reminds us that our eyes are the windows to our soul. Easy's Wayne, my mentor, taught me this years ago that your eyes are the windows to your soul. And pornography remains and is one of the greatest weapons that Satan uses to take men and women down. Let me give you some statistics on pornography. 40 million U.S. adults regularly visit internet pornography websites. 42.7% of all internet users view pornography. Every second of the day, 28,258 internet users are viewing porn. Let me say that again. Every second, 28,258 people are viewing porn. 2.5 billion pornographic emails are sent every single day, and the U.S. annual porn revenue is currently 13 billion, and worldwide, the porn revenue is about $100 billion. Is that number accurate? I would say it probably is. I would say it's probably higher, but let's just agree with this. Whatever it is, we know that it's excessive. So the porn business, looking to increase market share, knowing that it had pretty much grabbed most of the men that were alive, at least a high percentage of it, they started to do something very strategic, and they began strategically and intentionally going after women. And people would say, well, they've always been going after women. No, no, I mean, but they really made a conscious effort. I mean, they went, they went hard after this. So in 2000, and, uh, I think it was 2015, I, I, might, I might be wrong on the date here, there was a best-selling book that came out. It was called Fifty Shades of Grey. Actually, the movie came out before then, and then the movies were released in 2015. So the the book and the movies were called Fifty Shades of Grey, and they turned that into a movie. And the film, listen, was marketed as an erotic, romantic movie. And the movie was so successful that two more movies followed it. So, you know, part one, part two, part three, if you will. And although this movie was uh, poorly received critically, the series grossed $1.32 billion worldwide making it the seventh highest grossing R-rated franchise of all time. 
this was, many would go and say, would say these words, those that study pornography, they would say that when the pornographers started to really go after women, this was the movie that was used. It was, they call it the gateway into porn for women. I'm not saying just because of that movie, but I'll tell you what the statistics are, because we're always talking about porn and men, and we're going to talk about the men in just a moment, but 30% of all porn now is viewed by women. So what's the point in telling you such things? Well, the allure of lust is real in the lives of both men and women. And that's important for us to understand. Jim Dennison, a PhD writing for the Christian Post, said these words, Fifty Shades of Grey is a porn movie disguised as a romance. The film shows at least 20 full minutes of sex. The movie glamorizes and normalizes sexual abuse. So, as we consider such things, remember this, that Satan's not going to miss a trick. It's the same playbook being played out, just the enticement or the strike. It's repackaged, but it's the same allure. Satan is sexualizing things, and then as he sexualizes everything, it becomes normalized. So that's what happens. That's what the world does. It's sexualized and it's normalized, right? And again, that's the allure. So how is it that maybe a friend of yours watched the movie and were able to justify it? Maybe you watched the movie or somebody online watched the movie. How could they watch such a film and then justify watching such a film? Typically, what you'll hear is some form of a response that's like this. You know, what's the big deal, right? I'm not hurting anyone, it's just a movie, it's just fantasy, something along those lines. But you know, the same thing would be true for men. When you ask men why is it they would consume regularly pornographic content, and then as they do that, they start to justify their actions. Remember, the longer we're at it, the longer we're justifying our actions. So how could they justify such things? Because again, one believes they're not hurting anyone, right? That's what they believe. Many suggesting it's okay because it is between two consenting adults. That's the belief system. So again, what's the big idea? Well, here is the big deal. The reality is many of the women are not consenting adults. They're not consenting adults. And we know that from all the sex trafficking. Many are underage girls that have been trafficked. And with the demand for pornography being so high, the demand to get more girls or underage people, that demand also increases. So it's a supply and demand. There's a high demand for it. Therefore, trafficking is continuously on the increase because of the demand of pornography. So the big deal is this, and I'm going to share some things with you that I think you're going to know, but we have to be careful not to say I know, but to really think of this in the, in the context of Scripture and what I'm reading here today. Think of it in this view, okay? Pornography is one of the greatest destroyers of families. It damages the marriage relationship. It causes a man or a woman not to give themselves fully to one another. Porn teaches, because you're seeing these images, you're watching these things, it teaches that the other you know, the spouse is an object to be used for your pleasure. And that's what it keeps reinforces. Gary Thomas, the author of 
many books, including Sacred Marriage, Boundaries, and Five Love Languages, he noticed this, and this is helpful, and this was something I didn't know. So I think this will be really helpful for you to lean in. So Gary Thomas noticed as he was counseling folks that those who struggled with pornography were also those who were angry. Angry. These men had little or no self-control with their anger and also had minimal or self minimal self-control as it pertained to their lustful desires. So what's the translation there? Men who regularly give in to porn are angry men. And here's the reality. We can't unsee what we see, hence why Jesus in the text is saying, I'm warning you, men and women, guard your eyes. You can't unsee what you see. When we come to a saving faith, we can't unsee what we see. We still have images in our mind, even when we are a believer, it is harmful. So with that in view, think about it. Jesus is saying, guard your heart and now guard your eyes. In verses 31 and 32, we're going to be talking about divorce. Now I want you to notice the progression in the text. Notice we talked about uh, do not murder or don't be angry, right? Notice how when someone's angry, there's contempt in their heart, right? There's contempt in their heart. And then it starts to go all the way down to what? It comes into, you know, adultery and lust. And, and now we're looking at divorce because this is what happens. Sexual sins or this lust, it, it wreaks havoc on marriages and it leads to divorce. So what does God say about divorce? Well, in verses 31 and 32, along with Matthew 19, 1 and 12, these sections of Scripture are referred to as the exception clauses. But I want you to just consider what God's Word says, not necessarily what I say, but what does the Word say? I pray that I, I preach this accurately and straight. But before I, I do move forward on the subject of divorce, I do want to pause and I want to be sensitive uh, to many of you who have gone through uh, divorce. As your shepherd, I understand the pain of divorce. I understand it personally. And many of you are pained on a subject such as this. You're not, you're not alone. Know that your pastor is standing with you. I've personally felt the pain of divorce. My parents wore divorce. I, I had a front row seat of the pain. Uh, and I saw the pain that it brought to my precious mom, Linda. So, and even if you're somebody who you go, look, I, there's th some in the room or some watching that would say, but you know, my husband, he cheated or he ran off on me, he, you know, he did, whatever it is. Or and there's some that say, man, that, that wasn't what happened to me. I just lost my marbles and, uh, and I sinned and, I, and I, I lost my marriage. I, I want you to hear me. Uh, our, our, our precious Lord Jesus Christ is so gracious to us that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. When we repent of our sins and place our faith in God, when we go to him and ask for his forgiveness, he'll forgive us. And I don't want to make light of the subject, but I want to make much of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is a loving and gracious God who does, in fact, bring healing to those who are broken because of a marriage, a marriage that was dissolved. So please keep that in view. But verse 31 says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
So Jesus is citing the law, specifically Deuteronomy. So it was also said, whoever divorced his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But what about 32? But I say to you, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, Pastor, is it true, from what I just got done reading, that sexual sin, that could be grounds for a wounded spouse to seek a biblical divorce? Would that be true, yes or no? Yes. Yes. However, it's not the first thing that we look for. We're always looking for reconciliation. Jesus is always looking to put broken things back together. But the verse is what it is. R.C. Sproul, weighing in on the matter, said this. The term sexual immorality translates in the Greek to porneia, which covers a wide variety of sexual sins and not just a physical relationship between a person and another who is not his or her spouse. The Apostle Paul, weighing in on the matter, also addresses the subject of when a spouse is abandoned or deserted by the unbelieving spouse. Divorce in this situation is also considered to be grounds for biblically for a biblically a biblical permissible divorce, and we see this. And I'd encourage you to write this down: First Corinthians seven, ten through sixteen. First Corinthians ten seven through sixteen. So this is what I don't want you to hear. I don't want you to hear that your pastor is saying, "Listen, if any of these things happen to you, then you just need to run right to your divorce attorney and get a divorce." That's not what's being taught here. Remember the pattern of the Bible is that Christ always wants to see broken things put back together. But some of you, those days are long gone. But remember, we don't rush to get a divorce. However, we look at this and understand that we, we could. So please keep that in view. So when Jesus says, going back to verse 27, you have heard that it was said, or in verse 31, it was also said, these are important, and then he follows up that statement with, I have, but I have said to you. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. In other words, and he's speaking to everybody there, right? You have heard this teaching. You have heard divorce taught in such a way that is not accurate. And he's come to set the record straight. Jesus is not redefining the law. He's explaining what the law's original intent is. So someone's missed it, and it isn't Jesus, right? So he's explaining what the original intent is. Why would he do this? Why would Jesus make this subject matter on the Sermon on the Mount? Because the Pharisees were playing fast and loose with the Bible. Fast and loose with the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, which had always, and they know this, depicted a high view of marriage, has now been removed and replaced with a more accommodating, rabbinic view that made divorce easy. And that's the the issue. The law... 
the high view of marriage has now been replaced. And this is what he's going after. That's the context and the proper context. That's the proper context. So consider that. Because we have to ask ourselves, why would anybody think that if it wasn't true? Can we just think about the world in which we live in? Why do people think things now that you go, I can't believe they bought into that? Anybody with me? Well, the reigning opinion of this particular matter was given by a liberal rabbi by the name of Hillel. Now, what he was doing was he was capitulating that divorce could be given for any reason possible. I mean, just about any reason possible. So a liberal rabbi has grabbed the affections of those in the community, and he's now saying, you know, get a divorce, just, just anything goes. If you, don't, you know, if you don't believe me or find that hard to believe, let me give you just some of the reasons that would determine that a man could divorce a woman. There's several. One would be burnt food. If, you burn, if she burns your food, you can divorce her. Thinning hairs, warts, leprosy, lazy. If she's lazy, definitely get rid of her. No eyebrows, one eyebrow, or even bushy eyebrows, you can get rid of her. So it's ridiculous, but it's true. But listen, how ridiculous is the world we live in now? I mean, if you buy into a lie long enough, stuff like this becomes just normal. I, we look at this and we laugh. But isn't this the world we live in now? Yes. A liberal rabbi made it okay. But people want things to be okay. When we sin, it's not because of somebody that was liberal. It's because we want it to be okay, because our affections are towards sin. So divorce was so common amongst the people, that's why Jesus is dealing with this. He had to address it. It was an issue of the day. Divorce was a way for men to accommodate their sin. The result is such that women were being discarded like garbage. So Jesus is coming in and defending the women. That's what he's doing here. So they're not garbage, they're made in my image. Think about this. In this time in history, if a woman was divorced, she was considered to have leprosy. Nobody wanted anything to do with her. And what happened was, if she didn't have family to look after her, she'd become not just destitute financially, but oftentimes she couldn't support herself on what would they do during that time. Well, unfortunately, they would work their way into prostitution. So this is a big deal. So because of such things, you would think that that would just be done. It would be over, right? Uh, that Jesus said his peace. Uh, no one's going to argue with that. It's pretty clear. I mean, that's pretty ridiculous. You can't divorce your wife because, uh, you know, she has bushy eyebrows type of stuff, right? But it's not, it's not over. It's far from over. As a matter of fact, if we look at Matthew 19, 3 through 9, we can go through that a little bit, and I would encourage if you have a Bible, head on over there. But think about this. The conversation is not over. The Pharisees still want to keep talking to Jesus about the subject of divorce. In 19.3, it says, And the Pharisees came up to him. So the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Well, think about this. 
They're, at, they're, they're the religious leaders of the day. Is it lawful to divorce, divorce one's wife for any cause? Why would they ask this question? Why are they asking the question? It's the same reason why the media today will ask a Christian if they're on any news media outlet. Think about it. If you see, you know, a John MacArthur on television or maybe a, a Greg Laurie or a Chuck Swindoll, whoever's on television, when they, they put you on, the, if you're on one of those channels, they'll typically ask you a question uh, and they'll say something like this. You know, hey, you know, pastor, hey, what's your view on marriage? What's your view uh, on uh, sexual sin? What's your view, on, what's your definition of marriage? Or something like that. So they're going to ask them a hot-button issue of the day. Now, they're not asking because they really want to know what you're thinking most of the time. They're asking so they can play a game of gotcha and let you know that what you just got done saying is so wrong and you're an idiot for saying the very things that you're saying. Like, you don't even, you're not, you're not with it. You're like an old fogey. You don't, you don't get it. Like, are you really going to keep sticking with the Bible? So it's a game of gotcha. Well, the Pharisees knew what Jesus was going to do. And Jesus does exactly what we think he's going to do. He does something. He quotes the Bible. And he continues to be straight with them. And he answers them in verses 4 through 6 this way. He answered, have you not read? What's he doing? Bible. Pharisees, have you not read, verse 4, 19.4, have you not read, Pharisees, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Again, Scripture is how the Lord responds. He's restating God's original intent for marriage. Marriage is for a lifetime. It can't be dissolved because one's desires have changed, and clearly desires have changed. The lure of lust has changed them, okay? Only God is deter can determine the grounds of dissolving a marriage is the point. But they're looking for something, aren't they? Verse 7, they said to him, this is the Pharisees, listen to this. It's just so today. The Pharisees said to him, verse 7, Why then, Jesus, did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Listen to the language. Okay, Jesus, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and then send her away? away. Now let's look at verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Church, listen, this is so important. Moses did not command. They've twisted scripture. Moses allowed. He didn't command. He allowed. He allowed. 
That's a gigantic, gigantic difference. Again, they're playing fast and loose with the text. Moses allowed because their hearts were hardened. They were discarding their wives. And Jesus protecting the woman, doing the very thing that a man is supposed to do for a woman, Jesus steps in and looks after the women because of the sinful husbands. The Pharisees, again, notice the pattern through, uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, they're preoccupied with looking, creating loopholes uh, for divorce. That's what they're preoccupied with. And Jesus preoccupied with the institution of marriage. One wants a loophole, one's preoccupied with the institution of marriage. Jesus again clarifies his position in verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The Pharisees knew full well that Jesus would hold the line, and this is important. Remember what happened to John the Baptist when he held the line? What happened to, to him? He spoke up, didn't he? He was God's man in that season, and he said to Herod, he confronted him and said, it's not, lifeful, it's not lawful for you to take your brother Philip's wife. It's wrong what you're doing. And what did Herod do to him? He put him in prison, and then ultimately he had him beheaded. For what? He didn't like the message. There's a price to be paid when a man of God or a woman of God stands and defends the truth. That is the message. Once again, as I shared last week, the heart of the matter really is a matter of the heart. It really is a matter of the heart. Again, we see the heart front and center again. Warren Wiersbe called the heart the master control unit of the body. The heart controls our thoughts, our emotions, and will. But as we went through the Beatitudes on week one of the Sermon on the Mount, we came across one in particular. It's found in uh, chapter 5, verse 8. You may recall, it said, blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart important for us to just think about that. Blessed are the pure in heart. And why is that? For they're the ones that will see God. The word pure in that context means undivided. Blessed are the pure, the undivided. Jesus wants our undivided attention and demands that his followers be Remember, there are 12 disciples in the audience, and then there's the crowd. And as Jesus preaches, 11 of these disciples believed on him, followed him, left everything uh, to follow him. They forsook, forsook everything to follow him. I would just remind me and remind all of you that if their hearts could be divided, certainly our hearts can be susceptible to the enemy who is always at the door getting us to look. And as one preacher said, that look has a hook. And the enemy is looking to pull 
We've got to be careful. Guard your heart. Guard your eyes. Paul Tripp beautifully reminds us, and I paraphrase, that the biggest problem in life exists not outside of us, but rather inside of us. And Tripp was right in this as well, where he said sin is a matter of the heart long before it is an issue of our behavior, meaning the biggest problem in life exists inside of us, not outside of us. Christians like to blame the media for everything, and the media is not helpful, and I want to make sure that I'm careful because I do the same thing. I've yelled at my TV more than a few times this past month. But the reality is, is our biggest issue is not a liberal mandate. It's that Christians are so distracted by the things of this world that they actually want that more than Jesus. Because I know a lot of people. I, I know people like Easy Zwayne and Dr. Wilson and they got the same issues I have, but yet they're so committed to sharing the gospel and loving on people and discipling people and bringing people into their homes. And many of you do that, and I, I praise the Lord for that. But we all tend to think that we are more righteous than what we really are. True? I know I do. But Jesus continues to assault our misconceptions in this teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus addresses what sin is, and he's addressing what causes us to sin. And it's not because of a liberal rabbi. So God is continuously, masterfully using the law to to expose our hearts, reminding us over and over and over again that it really is a matter of the heart before it becomes an action of the body. What's in our heart allows us to go after things that are not helpful. It is our lustful desires that start in the heart that lead to sexual sin. We are a people that can escape many things, but we are unable to escape what's in the heart. But the mercy of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God is that he delivers you from you. It's always been the evil inside of me or you that connects to the evil outside of me. Jesus is going after the heart. So we must be a people who confess that we are the greatest problem, not other people. And if we confess such things, if we say that, if we say that it's somebody else, then we just are mistaken. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 is a helpful, helpful application. And allow me to share it with you. It might be familiar, but I think it's a helpful application. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Christians, we have been renewed in our minds. And that happens in a regenerated life. 
as the Spirit of God comes into our heart and it helps us, enables us to believe in Christ Jesus and we can obey because of the Spirit that is in each and every one of us. When we repent of our sins, we place our faith in Christ, when that Holy Spirit comes in us, when we trust Christ, we can conquer sin. We have a renewed mind. We have renewed affection. God helps us to endure even in a wicked world. Jesus did that for every single believer, and we need to hold on to that in the day and age in which we live. So in closing, remember what's available to you if you're in Christ, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Remember what's available to you, that Christ will sustain you. He will help you in your time of need. If you repent and you bring what you're struggling with to him, he will help you. He's available to you. And that's my prayer that the Lord would help us all to be reminded that we can put off the old self and put on the new. And he wants us to do such things. So don't be fooled by deceitful lusts. Remember what I said, there's always a hook in the look, right? Don't be fooled by deceitful lusts. Rather, flee from the lusts. I was talking to a brother this week, and he said, Charlie, it's not called an iPhone. We call it iPorn now. He said, flee from lust. Jesus says, strip it off. Remember who you are in Christ. And remember the words of Christ in Matthew 11, 28 and 29. I'll leave you with this. And before I do, Listen to me. If any of these sins are something that right now you're dealing with, I've got good news for you. And remember, if you're somebody that just going, man, you know, I, I really stepped in it in a marriage, whatever it is, there's, there's hope for you. God, God, there's hope for you, brother and sister. Maybe, though, right now your, your marriage isn't over, well, then I would just encourage you to consider the scripture, this reconciliation, what God would have for you. And for some of you there where it's too late, again, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you in this way. For those who go to the Lord in humility, when you go low, Jesus is high. He hears our people. He hears the cries of his people. He will help you if you're stuck in addiction of lust. He will help you. He's not against you. The enemy wants to keep you away from the Lord. He's saying, come to me. It might be a righteous fight. And for some of you women who say, you know, my husband was, is, is stuck in this sin. Your job isn't to beat your husband over the head or vice versa. It's to understand something. That your husband needs to repent, but there needs to be a righteous fight that you can come alongside and be of help to him. Again, for everybody that I've talked about here today, there's hope that Jesus will forgive those who cry out to him. And he separates your sin as far as the east is from the west. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Tell me that you heard that. Just say amen. Here's what I want to leave you with. Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Come to me. 
all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And it almost ends like this. And when you do, you're going to find rest, peace for your weary soul. There is hope in Christ. Amen?